So I started a series on Gideon, I don't know how long ago. But I thought tonight, since I was called late afternoon, I thought, you know, I never finished my little series on Gideon. So can we take a few moments, a few moments, and look at Gideon chapter 7. Let's start about, what did I say? <laughs> Gideon, <laughs> oh. <laughs> he pretends to teach others and he himself needs taught. Yes, it's, look, we got a lot of issues here. Okay, Judges chapter 7. We're really going to, we're finishing on Gideon chapter 8, but we've got to kind of get a running, running head start. Have, have you ever known prickly people? Maybe people who are really good at what they do, but they were so self-important and difficult that you would try not to get their help if you had a chance. I mean, you only ask them if it's really bad because it's so difficult to work with them. And then they want to tell you what a sacrifice and all these kind of things. And, and uh, well, the Ephraimites were like that consistently throughout the book of Judges. They end up experiencing some very tragic things by chapter 12. But Gideon avoided them. Is it still, it sound like the microphone went out for a minute. Gideon avoided them uh, in some of the earlier issues, uh, the several of the battles, basically because they were so difficult. And so by the time we get into chapter 8, the Ephraimites are mad at Gideon because he didn't call them back at the first skirmish, back with the fleeces and all that. They weren't part of all that. And then he didn't call them for the main battle against the Midianites with the jars and all that part. Uh, and he only called them at the last moment when the kings were escaping over the Jordan and uh, getting into their territory. So on the one hand, as it turns out, they really had the most important thing, meaning all the battle would have been lost if the leaders had gotten away. Uh, so they really had a very important part of the battle, but the truth is Gideon had tried to avoid them, and he only called. So they were upset that they weren't called earlier, they weren't part of the main battle, but they were only called at the last minute to do, as it turns out, the most important part. Anyway, that was 23 to, let's look at chapter 8 now. Oh, that's the running head start to give you an idea. So, but the men of Ephraim, is bad enough that they got the most important part and everything else. They're the kind of people to hold a grudge and be difficult. Uh, and, and so they're upset and miffed. And uh, they're just the kind of people we hope we're not. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, why have you done this to us? So easily offended uh, they were. By not calling us, but when you went to fight with the Midianites. Meaning, why don't you do the main thing with us? And they reprimanded him sharply. And, and the truth is, because they were so difficult a people, it was better to avoid them, as good in battle as they were. What a shame it is to say that in a battle, there's people who are better to avoid because they're so difficult, and they're on your team. Instead of them being embarrassed, they thought he should be embarrassed. But Gideon, uh, in this case, was a peacemaker, uh, and so this is how he answered them. The proverb says, a soft answer turneth away rebuke. Right, or a harsh word. So here we see Gideon demonstrating this in chapter 8, verse 2. And so Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison to you? Meaning, your part was so big. You're so wonderful. Uh, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizar, which is the place where he was from, meaning him and his family? I mean, yeah, we were in the main battle, but, but you were there, and, and you got to take care of these kings so isn't the gleanings, the little part you did is actually the most important part. That's what he says to them. Uh, he says, God has delivered into your hands the prince of Midian, which were Oreb and Zeb. And what, I, what am I able to do in comparison with you? You're so wonderful. That's what he's trying to do. Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. 
these very difficult people. Now, we're ending where Gideon turns victory into failure. Isn't that terrible? I mean, Gideon was a judge who had all this anointing, as it turns out. He finally didn't believe. His faith, his fear turned into faith. But ultimately, his character wasn't strong enough. And the Lord told me years ago, he said to me that, Ron, many people don't have the character to handle failure. And far fewer have the character to handle success. And Gideon was one such person. So the anointing came upon him, and then he used it wrongly. And this is what I want you to know. There are people with false anointings and even demonic anointings who can heal in different things. But, but there are a lot of people who are immature in their faith, and yet their gifting is profound. And so though God used them powerful, they misuse the anointing. And so some people think that they're false teachers. There are false teachers, but there are people who are true teachers who simply are people that just are immature in their character. And God's going to deal with them very harshly because some of them were given great anointing. So we're going to see how Gideon turns his success and the anointing into something that does not last and does not go beyond his life. So verse 4, When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, fellow Jews, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. We're hungry. We're we're famished. We're 50 miles from the battle. They're going to end up going another 100 miles to kill these guys. And they ask for some food, but the people don't want to give them food because these are the very people that have been tormenting them. So they say, you want us to give you food before you kill them? You kill them, we'll give you food, but we're not going to give you food now. That didn't go over very well, as you might imagine. Please give loaves of bread, verse 5, to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. I am pursuing uh, Zeba and Zamuna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna now in your hand? And if you've cut off their hands, you've already won? And if they've not, don't talk to us. We're not giving you nothing. These guys may come back and get us. So in their self-interest, they did not help Gideon. And Gideon, though he was very anointed, he had bad character. And he said, well, basically... When I come back, I'm going to kill you all. Isn't that what we want people to do, to have a strong anointing? I mean, God was very patient with Gideon, but Gideon was not patient with the people who didn't do him right. I don't know what the right thing to do was, but presumably it wasn't to whip these people like he did with thorns, etc. So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zamuna into my hand, well, I'm going to get them, and when I do... Then I will tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to tear you up. I'm going to really, literally cut their flesh. These thorns are so thick that when they, I'm going to rip the skin off of you and kill you, which eventually he did. Uh, Then, see, you can have the anointed. You can be gifted. Gifts are not maturity. Gifts are not character. All right, we've got to be careful. There are people who are false. There are people who are bluffing. There are people who have God's anointing, but they're immature. When we find people with God's anointing and God's character, we are really blessed. Um, I don't know what I would do in success. Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit came upon you and everything you did turned great and all the people stood against you fell apart and the revival? I mean, can you imagine how awful, uh, wonderful it would be? But but how much it would expose our character. 
at the same time. Unfortunately, Gideon's character gets exposed, and it's not so great. Eight. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke to the men of Penuel, and he said, When I come back in peace, I will tear down your tower. I'm going to kill all you too. They had a tower there, and they, they're mocking him from the tower. See, they're all saying this. He says, but when I come back. Now Zeba and Zamuma were at Kakor, and their armies with them. Verse 10, about 15,000. Now they had come at something like, what, it was 120,000? So 105,000 were dead. All right? Uh, they're 100 miles east of all this. That's a long way out into the east there. Uh, and they're not quite to Midian, but apparently these guys thought Gideon would ever pursue them that far. So they went a long way. They were very determined. All right. All who were left of the army were the, uh, of the people of the east, the Midianites. And 120,000 men who had drew the sword had fallen. I'm sorry. So that means that there was 135,000. Excuse me. 11. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nebuth and Jogbeha, whatever that is, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. Because they're 100 miles in, they thought there's no way they'll come out here, but instead they were destroyed. When Zebeth and Zamuma fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kids, kids, kings of Midian. I don't know why they had to keep repeating names, I can't say. Uh, but he routed, he took them, and he routed the whole army. Now, 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Heres, the, the mountain. He caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he... Gideon came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zebah and Zamuna, whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zebah and Zamuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? 16. And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth, meaning he tore them apart literally physically with those thorns. Can you imagine the kind of uh, heart you'd have to have uh, to do that to 77 people. Now, they acted evilly and treacherously, there's no doubt. But that's a, the implication is that this, is, this chapter exposes Gideon's weakness. This is not an appropriate thing. Meaning, everything in the Bible doesn't mean God's approving it. This is a case and example where Gideon is exposed. And the whole point of the chapter says, here he's won this great battle on the outside, but he's not won the battle within, in his own heart. He's not mature and for God in the way he was supposed to be. So, he took the elders of the city, sorry, uh, 17. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of, that, of the city. So he killed all those other people too. And he said to Zebeth and Zamuna, what kind of men were they who you killed at Tabor, near his house? Meaning his brothers and his first cousins and all those people. And they said, oh, they look like you. Dumb answer. You're talking about a dumb answer. I mean, there's every time to lie. When a guy says, when the... What did it look like? What did those people look like that were from my hometown? And he says, oh, they look like the son of a king, just like you. They look like you're... That was the wrong... I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying you should lie. I'm just saying if there ever was a time to lie, this was one of them. All right? So he says, uh, and they answered, as you are, so they were. They look just like you. Each one, trying to be nice now, each one resembling a son of a king. Each one looked royal, just like you. Too late for that now. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had let them live, I would not kill you. 
apparently telling the truth. Unfortunately, they killed the, his brothers, and so he killed all of them. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. So we don't know, was this kid 10? Was he 12? Uh, we, he was young, and, and he was disgracing these guys by having a untested, immature boy kill them. That was to add to their disgrace. And, and one of the things, apparently, and I've not killed anybody, but apparently, I mean, I can't even imagine stabbing something like that you see on TV or whatever, or with the sword, but apparently, part of the reason you don't want a young boy doing it is they don't often do it right, so it increases the pain of them doing it wrong, which all sounds pretty gross to me, all right? But, uh, but Gideon wants to, to do this, and so he tells his son, rise your, uh, excuse me, he says, rise and kill them, but the youth would not draw his sword. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, is he 8, 10, 12? I don't know. There's a lot of tender-hearted boys. I don't know how old he was. I can certainly imagine not wanting to do that. So, it said the boy was afraid because he was still a youth. Uh, 21, so Zebeth and Zamuna said, rise yourself. Of course, if a real soldier does it, at least it'll be quick. And kill us, for, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zamuna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. All right, so they had these silver things that they adorned their camels with that were valuable. And uh, so he took those because they were the spoils all right, now, there's some lessons for us here at 22. We're kind of getting to the point. 22. So again, we're seeing a guy with great anointing, but he's starting to do iffy things. Starting to do iffy things. Started out pretty good, but now getting off the track. It can happen to all of us. None of us uh, can uh, forget to be walking carefully with the Lord, and, and Gideon seemed to drift. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. Both you and your son and your grandson, they're saying, be a dynasty. Now, that's a pretty cool thing for people to say, right? You, you've done so much for us. You delivered us from the Midianites. You be a king over us, and, and then your son, your grandson. We're going to let you. That's how much we respect the anointing uh, that's been on you. And Gideon answered correctly. He said, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So his mind was right, but his heart wasn't completely. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request. Now, it is not clear that when he asked for the earrings, which would be no, nose rings and earrings, he said, just give me a little bit of compensation. So they had tons of gold and stuff that they got from these Midianites and the other people that would work with them. So it was a small thing. They were glad to just, he said, just give me the earrings, uh, which would be nose rings as too. So it says, uh, I'd like to make a request of you for each of you would you give me the earrings from his plunder? Which would have been a small thing. They were thrilled to do that. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, they were not genetically Ishmaelites, meaning directly related to Ishmael. They were Ishmaelites in that they were wanderers or nomads, what we might think of today as Bedouins uh, type in terms of the way that they lived because we know that their family was Abraham, but through one of the sons with a K. It wasn't through Ishmael. So it means for they were nomads or they were... They were like that in terms of their culture, not so much uh, in terms of their direct parentage. And so the people answered, we'll give you the earrings. We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides, so beside all kind of other stuff, beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were in the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were around the camel's necks. Now, 
So I just thought to myself, let's Google. And believe me, you've got to check my math, but if you've got a calculator, let's go through this. So gold is $1,474 and about 70 or 40 cents, something like that today. All right, so you take that $1,474 times it by 16 ounces for a pound, and the shekels amount equal to 75 pounds, then times that by 75. I came up with something like $1,774,800 and something, something like close. Does that sound close? Did any of you math people? Did we do that close? Oh, what's a troy ounce? Well, let's hear the math. What would it be? Oh, don't mention troy ounces and then not know. It's interesting. When I read, they said that there were light shekels and heavy shekels. And they said these would be heavy shekels, but I didn't know what the difference. But when I looked up shekel at the time of Judges, Anyways, I got, the, uh, I got that this would be, the weight of the earrings would be 75 pounds. That's what I got from that. You can't always trust Google, but they're pretty good on this kind of basic mathematical type stuff. But anyway, that's a lot of money, plus all this other stuff, which was his personal spoils. Now, out of that, he took that and was wealthy, but he also made an ephod. What is an ephod? That's what the high priest would wear, and four people could wear it, but the high priest was one, and it was like a fiddle-shaped garment, and, and uh, it would hang from the waist and from here, and on it, you'd have the breastplate. Now, he did not apparently have the breastplate, but if you remember, the high priest would have a breastplate with 12 stones for each of the tribes, and then there would be the, the umen and the thumen, or ermen and the... They were like dice, um, weird dice, not like our dice, but they were dice, and they would use them before the coming of the Holy Spirit, when was the last time they used uh, casting of lots to make a decision? Thirteen disciples. And then after that, of course, with the coming of the Spirit, they, did, they were led by the Spirit. With who should? So that was the last time. So there was the specific umen and thumen, uh, which are some kind of dice things that they use, and they would cast these as lots, and in some way they would get answers. So on the one hand, here's Gideon anointing all this stuff, but he creates an ephod as if he was a priest, which he wasn't. And because he was anointed and the people, the other priests really weren't that anointed, he ended up drawing Israel away from the proper worship of God. And it ended up, they focused on and they turned into idolatry. They started worshiping this symbol of anointing that Gideon made for himself. And it became a snare, meaning this very thing that he kind of did in a way out of a mixed motives and he probably thought he was being good, but, but in a sense, what he ultimately did is he created something that the people recognized his anointing. It's kind of like saying if you went to, to see some great anointed preacher in Orlando and then we come home and say, well, we got old, boring Ron at our church. So it's like they, 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 were, they were so plugged into this anointing, but they made an idol of it. And getting and doing that, he led astray the people from the proper God-ordained worship of God. And to get ahead of ourselves, but to say it now, when he died, with all that he did when he died, the people were idolaters just like before when he started. It's possible the anointing for a generation, but to drift, the fumes may be enough for your lifetime. But the generation that follow don't stay with God. What a horrible thing it would be to say. Can you imagine if some of our most anointed, I'm, I'm not in this league, 
This application can't be for me, but can you imagine someone who's super anointed for his or her generation? God used them. But by the time that they passed, the people that followed God were caught up in the Spirit of God and the move of God. By the time the person died, they're back just as worse off as they were before. That is a bad ending. That's turning victory into failure. 27, then Gideon, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set up in his city, Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot. I mean, they worshipped it. Do you know there are people today, and it's not the fault of the person necessarily, there are people today who worship the anointing of people rather than the God of the anointing. Do you know how Mormonism started? How did Joseph Smith start something when he was a convicted felon and pedophile? How could you start a religion? You've already been in jail. You're, how do you do that? The churches were dead. The, he went into Bible-believing churches at the time, in the 1820s, 30s, whatever that is, somewhere in that time, and he had a massive gift of prophecy. And he prophesied, and the prophecies were so profound. I assume it was from the devil. However, you explain that to me. I can't explain it. But it was so profound that people who were Bible-believing Christians left the churches and followed Joseph Smith. To the point, the anointing was so strong that he would tell his friends that God said he was supposed to sleep with their wives, and they let him. Now, all I can tell you is I think it was powerful. I think it was of the devil. Clearly, the fruit was demonic. But there must have been some prophetic gift. People don't just let you sleep with their wives. I mean, to misunderstand that Mormonism, that the power that was there was, was incredible, is to misunderstand how Mormonism grew. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to read the history uh, of, of that religion and realize, wow, the things that they were able to do. We, we've, met, we've known people who are Mormon who came out of it from Canada who said that every year they pray over people at 12, they bless them, the elders bless them, and they prophesy, and all the prophecies come true. And yet I grew up in Christian church with great orthodoxy, and they didn't believe in prophecy. And yet you can have movements formed off of the false and the imitations. Or however that were, I don't know, I can't explain Joseph Smith. I assume again that it's not a gift that was from God. But people can have that kind of profound gift from God and get just as crazy and just as bad. I mean, some of you are familiar with Jim Jones. He was an evangelical guy. Started out, when those guys went to Ghana, they're basics. He got into all the sex of all the people that drank the Kool-Aid and died. Some of you are too young to even understand who he was. But he actually came from an evangelical, solid orthodoxy, not, a, not like Joseph Smith, solid orthodoxy, and got completely wiped out and killed everybody. Would rather have everybody die than to be exposed for what he was doing. Gideon made it all, took that gold, made it into an ephod, gold thread, wool, linen, but there's gold thread in it, set up in his city, Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot. They became idolaters with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his house. It's like he got so self-impressed with the gift that he forgot about God. Thus, Midian was subdued. The power was there to do the job. So Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. I mean, they never came back in history to do anything else. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. I mean, they had peace, but they had drifted from God. 
Then Zerubbabel, another name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had a harem. He got off on that as well. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. He had a harem. 31, and his concubine who was with Shechem also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. What's the difference between a concubine and a wife? A concubine doesn't have the right of inheritance. So it's like having a prenup that says, I'll take care of you in your life, I may provide you, but you don't have a full share. Uh, so it's a secondary class type of uh, person, and there's all kind of reasons of why they did that in the Old Testament. But anyway, uh, none of them good, and this is not a good thing. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age. So the anointing is with him. God, for, even though Gideon got the track, God bless it. Listen, God is using people who are living off the fumes of the anointing of earlier times, and that's why they're getting so crazy. They have not stayed close. They didn't have the character in size and proportion with the gift they had. Really heartbreaking. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, and Oprah of the Abizrites, 33. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played harlot with the Baals and made Baal bearest their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hands of their enemy on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Zerubbabel, which is Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Meaning in his lifetime, there was enough fumes of the anointing. But his character got him ensnared, and his children, his generations, and the Jews, the very people God had to rescue, sent him to rescue. They experienced it in his life, but by 40 years, it was all gone. And they didn't, there was no vestige of uh, a pure heart towards God. I mean, that's, I mean, the decimation, imagine how far people, I think that's kind of what we're seeing in our lifetime. People are talking about the, the uh, you know, Christianity falling apart. We got these churches where, that are dying. They're not preaching, most of them, the gospel. And they're certainly not preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have all these mainline all, Christianity being decimated. They can't remember the days when God and holiness and truth were being taught properly. But then there are the churches that I come from that were Bible-believing and careful uh, in their teaching, but denying the power of the Holy Spirit. They're dying. And the churches that I grew up with, the kids of my generation, they're not in church. They know the gospel. They got saved 50 times like me. But the last place they're looking for help is in the church because we were told everything, but there was no love and there was no power of the Holy Spirit to change us. And so what really happened is they came under a type of law teaching uh, be good, be holy, but without the power and love of the Holy Spirit. That's going to burn anybody out. Anyone's going to be breaking under that. And instead of keep turning back to Jesus, they just walk away. Uh, we're living in the age where, where churches and institutions, they're, they're still living off the fumes, but there's no life. And then we've got old institutions like Anglicanism, and we've got these crazy people in Gainesville trying. Dear Lord, come back. We're not denying it. This aren't, there was a day when the Anglican church, the revivals, unbelievable. I mean, Wesley and Whitfield. Imagine pe people preaching and the power coming so profoundly. You had to say, look, everyone sit down because when I open my mouth, 
you're going to be falling out and rolling and you, can't, you won't be able to move. So I won't start until everyone's kind of got their seatbelt on. Because in the old days, people got up in the trees and on the Philadelphia, they'd be in the light post. You know, and, and, and when Whitfield began to speak, he just began to start, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit would fall. People would fall the trees. So he wouldn't start a service until everybody was down. Everybody was safe. I would love to say that. Make sure it's, Denise, make sure you're sitting still back there. Get both hands. You know, hold the person next to you. Did you know the, the holy rollers, all that stuff? That's not from, I mean, certainly Pentecostal, but that happened in Anglican revival. I mean, the things that have been in the Anglican church that the Anglican church disdained and threw out because they didn't want the poor people who are getting saved to come into their church. That's why there's method. there would be no Methodists if the uh, dead Anglicans had welcomed them in when they got saved. And Methodism became bigger, uh, at least for a long time, at least certainly in the West, not in the world, but in the West. Listen, we have to be careful. The, the anointing and the gifts, even in small measure, I sure hope that the measures, I feel like the Lord said, the day's coming, we're going to see it in a bigger measure. I can't speak of it in those terms. I can longingly, I've been in, I've tasted in Indian places some, some really neat things. Uh, but, but, but what happened to Gideon when the Holy Spirit came on him like that, everything he did, even when he did wrong, had favor to it. Can you imagine? We need a couple lessons. One, when anointing comes, we've got to be not impressed with ourselves and stay impressed with God. But it's really hard when everything you do is blessed, good and bad. People ask you, whatever you say works. So people think you're the smartest guy in the, wor- the room or the world. And what is it? Just God's with you. When God's with you, everything works. Doesn't make you the smartest person. Doesn't make you the most reliable person. It just means the favor of God's come. And, and this is what happens in revivals. Great people start out, and it's so heady. It's so incredible that we can forget as human beings and stay humble. We have to really work. So the lesson for any upcoming is, boy, do we have to be humble. Number two, we have to be discerning. We need to recognize that there are holy people that started out great who have drifted from that, and their teachings have exposed them, and though the anointing's with them, they have drifted from proper teaching, and we have to be discerning about that. Uh, we've turned uh, Christianity into... You know, in Eastern Africa, they, they make fun of the Christians because they say they're just the most... Imagine worldly people saying, oh, the Christians and the Christian pastors, they're just there to steal your money. Can you imagine? They have banks in East Africa that make, that say, at least if you put the money in the bank, it'll be safe. If you give it to your church, it's going to be misused. They have commercial. That's how embarrassing it is, the health and wealth thing that's gone into East Africa that started here, of course. We're living in a weird day. A weird day when the power of the Holy Spirit is to give us what we want, not to make us like Jesus. We got to be really discerning. And we got to be really appreciative of what the challenge must be for super anointed people. We have enough challenges and we're not. So imagine what it must be to be super anointed and how hard it must be. We got to really pray for those people. They really have a challenge. It's hard to handle failure. I can't imagine what they're going through. Can't imagine what they're going through. It's tough. Um, so Gideon is an example of someone who the Lord took up but whose character was exposed and got further and further off so that when he dies though his anointing was not to carry a generation it was not enough to carry him beyond I, I mean the greatest hope and prayer I have is that my children know Jesus better than me you know my prayer is that one day when, when I'm dead and gone that St. Andrew's is a far better church 
after and the next generation. That's, there are churches like that. That's what we want. We want deep roots and, and, and a church that goes from glory to glory because we're committed to the gospel. We're committed to the, the things of God and we don't let success or failure derail us. But it's really hard. So tonight, I got a text from a very important... You would think the bishop would be the most important person in the church, right, Majita? That's how it should be, right? But when you get a text from your wife, who, who becomes the most important person? In, you answer me. You're a lawyer. You tell me, Majita. Yeah, the wife. Yeah, that's what I'm going with, too. So tonight we're going to do it a little different because Don's wife is doing better. Don is doing better. Uh, his wife was sick, and so he was taking care of her, and then he got sick. So anyway, they're doing better. Larry is not feeling well. So tonight, if you would, uh, I would recommend you, I just have you stand and I pray. But what I'd like to do is if you want, I would love for you to come up uh, in sort of a oval and I'd love to pray over each one of you tonight. Uh, but it will be different tonight and shorter in that sense uh, because our team is not all here. But I would love to pray for you tonight. And, and one thing I'm praying for me all day is, Lord, the anointing. Oh, we, we see the challenges with it, but Lord, we really got to have the anointing. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we really need your anointing, and we thank you in advance for your anointing. But Lord, we pray, because we don't think we're better people than Gideon or, or all kind of other people who made mistakes and didn't finish well. We realize we're just as capable of failure. We're just as prone uh, to error, to sin. Uh, we don't think we're better than anybody else. We just haven't been tested at that level. So Lord, we pray a, that you would really bless us. We want the anointing, Lord. We want to be able to serve you and to honor you and to have great success that many people would know you and follow you, Lord, and it would be a generational thing. So, Lord, we ask you, would you guard our heart? Would you help us? Would you protect us in uncommon ways? We're asking, Lord, would you keep us on a short leash? Because, Lord, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to lead the God I love. It's Gideon knew it, and Lord, we know it too, so we ask you, Lord, in advance, help us, protect us. We want to serve you, and then we want to uh, finish well. And we want our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our churches to flourish far beyond. Lord, that they would stand on our shoulders and experience the fullness of what you promise in this life. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.